2: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: Welcome to our new PR Week podcast episode with Arvind Hickman.
2: I'm Arvin Hickman, and this is the PR Show from PR Week. Today, we're going to look at one of the industries that has been hit hard during the coronavirus. In April, various factors, including dwindling demand and a global glut of oil, led to US oil prices entering negative territory for the first time in history. Although we've seen volatility in the oil and gas industry before, some experts are warning of a significant long-term impact on the energy sector and a more rapid transition towards renewable energy sources. One of the world's largest energy companies, BP, came into the coronavirus crisis with an ambitious plan by new CEO Bernard Looney to become net zero by 2050. Communications and advocacy is a key pillar of BP's plans to transition to a more sustainable future. But will this new crisis derail BP's ambition, or will it highlight how urgent a transition to more sustainable sources is required? And what about other energy companies? How are they handling these uncertain and volatile times? To answer these questions and more, I'm joined by BP Executive Vice President of Communications and Advocacy, Jeff Morell, and Hill and Knowlton Strategies Managing Director of Energy and Industrials, Chris Pratt. Thank you both for joining us. I recently caught up to Jeff just prior to the coronavirus pandemic to discuss BP's new plans, and it's fair to say quite a lot has changed since then. Jeff, what has happened and how has this crisis impacted BP?
0: Well, Arvind, that seems like a lifetime ago, when in fact, it was probably only three months ago that we sat down uh, to talk about uh, Bernard Looney, our new CEO's sort of grand, ambitious vision uh, for people. Uh, And no sooner had he done that, on February the 12th, announcing a new purpose, uh, a new net zero ambition, and 10 clear aims to help us get there and help the world do the same, then basically a month later on March the 13th, uh, he ordered us all, all 70,000 plus employees of BP around the world to start working from home because of the pandemic. Um, So, you know, that would seemingly uh, have, you know, knocked us off course from that agenda, Mm. uh, but it has not. In fact, uh, Bernard was very clear-eyed and unambiguous, uh, you know, from the outset that this will will actually only reconfirm uh, the need for us to reimagine energy for people and our planet, as is our purpose, uh, to become a net zero company by 2050 or sooner and to help the world do so in that same timeframe. And in order to do that, we have to reinvent the company. Uh, And so we have continued on with that agenda, even in the midst of the COVID but simultaneously, we've obviously had to step up and uh, deliver on a new strategy uh, to deal with uh, the threat of the virus. And that's a three-part strategy that he was also very clear about. He saw in that opening moment that companies were gonna be judged um, by how they responded to this, by how they took care of their people, by how they took care of their communities, by how they took care of their shareholders. So he laid out a three-part plan to protect our people, support our communities, and strengthen our finances. And we've been focused on that, even as we continue to go about our reinventing of BP, uh, both those things simultaneously through the first 10 weeks of this crisis. Have you got some further details in, in terms of
2: those three different um, areas uh, what what sort of things you've done on the ground to to realize some of those those um, new new plans
0: I think everybody expects corporations in the midst of this to be protecting their people first and foremost mm-hmm. so all of us I think are doing the same fundamental things in that regard providing pPE uh, providing um, you know testing. Um, to adjusting how we work to provide for social distancing within the workplace. Uh, for us, you know, a company that is probably uh, roughly half in an office setting, that's meant everybody working from home, uh, and the other half on the front line, making sure the world has the energy it needs to function properly. Uh, those people are still out on offshore rigs, Uh, within refineries, delivering fuel, uh, manning forecourts, gas stations around the world. And so for those people, it's meant we need to provide them with the kit they need to protect themselves. Mm. But but more fundamentally, I think even than that is, as Bernard likes to say, not everyone will be infected by the virus, but everyone will be affected by it. It is a, a, a time of great anxiety and stress, fear for many people over sort of economic consequences, and so Bernard, even though we are all, all of us in this industry, uh, spending way more than we are making in this moment, uh, he said that we are not going to have any job losses in the midst of these opening few months of the crisis, but that people should have that fear hanging over them. Uh, as they're worried about protecting their health and that of their families, So we said for the first three months of this crisis, there would be no layoffs. So very attuned to physical and mental health. Uh, With regards to supporting our communities, uh, which is of equal importance, because I think the world recognizes that those who have the means, uh, those who have the, 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 the wealth, the resources, the reach, like big corporates, to step up and help those in need. So we have been doing things big and small around the world. Here in the UK, which is obviously our headquarters, our home, it's meant that we've been providing free fuel almost since day one uh, to first responders, uh, which has been very well appreciated. It's meant in America, for example, that we've uh, offered the use of our high-performance supercomputer to the U.S. government as they research Uh, cures for the pandemic. Uh, It's meant that we've provided free jet fuel for uh, the transport of PPE and other critical medical equipment, you know, around the world, Uh, things of that nature to support communities. And then finally, in terms of strengthening our finances, it's meant dramatic cuts in capital spend, about 25% reduction in our CapEx. It's meant uh, we 're trying to cut two and a half billion dollars from our operating expenses by the end of twenty one mm. and a hiring freeze, a promotion freeze, really trying to uh, you know avoid as much spending as possible uh, while oil, while oil prices are at these levels
2: uh, that volatility that, that we were sort of discussing before, how does a company like BP sort of manage the the sort of shareholder stakeholder message at a time like this?
0: The key is, I think, it, you know, in any crisis, you know, it, it, it communications takes on a greater sense of importance. Uh, it's 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 the lack of information, a void, a vacuum that causes more anxiety, more concern, more fear. And so uh, Bernard I- I instinctively understood that, and we have been our plan for him always has been, um, you know. Uh, a lot of communication. He's a very effective communicator himself. And so when we set up his plan, it was always about we want our people internally, certainly and externally to hear and and see ideally Bernard speaking uh, rather than read notes and so forth. So we've been very active uh, internally on Microsoft Teams doing weekly all hands calls with with our staff around the world and we've had you know, 10, 12, 13,000 people tuning in live, many thousands more watching on recordings. Uh, he's done a ton of social media as well, trying to stay connected to the outside world and sharing our approach to, to COVID uh, in a very transparent way. Because for a lot of people, they look at how do you do these things simultaneously without they see, see them being at odds with, them, with one another. You know, how can you sort of say, we're not going to give raises as we have decided not to, or we've postponed annual raises that would have gone into effect on April 1st until at least September the 1st. And yet at the same time, we've given millions of dollars to the MIND, a charitable mental health charity here in the UK. So Mm -hmm. how can you deny your staff the raises that they would have otherwise been getting and give money away instead to community organizations in need. A way to reconcile that and to help people understand our thinking is through an abundance of communication, both internally and externally. Uh, similarly, people have raised questions about you know, how can you um, continue, for example, to pay a dividend, as we have chosen to do, um, in the midst of this. Well, so We've been very clear that we have not taken any government um, handouts uh, during this crisis. We have not accepted any uh, employment assistance programs here in the UK or anywhere else around the world. Uh, So that gives us uh, more latitude to sort of make these decisions in terms of, you know, where we take from, where we give to, with the overall objective to try to protect our people, support our communities, and strengthen our finances for our shareholders. Mm.
2: You mentioned before that um, you've got to to make
0: sure that no jobs
2: are lost in the first few months of this crisis. Uh, I guess we don't really know how quickly or slowly that recovery is going to come. How much longer is it before BP has to take more sort of drastic action? Have those sort of discussions taken place yet?
0: Well, we are very much taking uh, drastic action already in the form of reducing uh, capital expenditure, reducing uh, our operating expenditures. So we are very much in action now. But with regards to uh, jobs, um, I think we've made it clear that this was a, a moratorium, a hiatus, a sort of a temporary reprieve on on uh, on job losses, so that no one was 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 going to have to worry about in those immediate first few months of losing jobs while the pandemic was sort of raging hot. Um, But with with oil at these prices, um, and with supply being what it is, that there is just way more supply on the market than there is uh, demand for it based upon the amount of global economic economic activity there is, uh, we will have to take additional measures. In that regard, and we'll have more news on that, you know, within the next few uh, weeks, I think, probably not in terms of specific numbers, but uh, in terms of uh, the need to uh, to look at the overall size of the organization. Okay. I would say, Arvin, I would just I would just add one other thing to that. That is not so much a tactical response to the current situation, although clearly. I think is somewhat accelerated by the current situation as it is part of the strategy that was laid out by uh, Bernard on February the 12th when he announced our new purpose, ambition and aims, because what he said then was, we need to reinvent BP in order to deliver that agenda. And what that means is we needed to get flatter organization, less layered, less bureaucratic, less siloed and rigid, more integrated, more agile, more nimble, uh, leaner, uh, and so that we could be, so that we could compete in in the changing uh, energy landscape. And so this was always the the strategic imperative. I think because of COVID, it it gets accelerated somewhat, but it's it's always the strategy.
2: Okay, Chris. I'd like to bring you into the discussion. Can you provide us some context on what you're seeing with some of your clients and across the sort of energy, oil, and gas sector more generally?
1: Thanks, Alvin. And um, it, it's—I would say um, there's a great deal of consistency with many of the themes that uh, Jeff has already has already covered, um, but also some some significant differences. And I obviously work with clients across the broader energy spectrum, so. That includes upstream oil and gas, and, and, and very happy to give some examples there. But I also think it's worth reflecting on uh, what we've also seen in the energy markets, uh, particularly in, in Europe, and how that's affected um, the way that companies have communicated. Um, clearly, COVID is is and has been an unprecedented um, situation. That. BP and many of its uh, competitors have had to uh, respond to, and the the capital expenditure and operating expenditure cuts, the um, uh, focusing on key worker staffs uh, at at key sites, the reduction of uh, executive uh, bonuses, and in some respect, in some cases, um, reduction of executive pay uh, on a temporary basis, have all been features of, of, of companies. But I think. What's interesting in the oil and gas arena is um, there being something of a a divergence, as it were, in terms of the approach that's taking place in, say, the European majors versus, say, um, the the majors in the United States. I think, and and that's for a number of different reasons. Um, I think we've seen, of course, uh, Shell come out with a 2050 net zero strategy um, in At at similar moments, just before uh, their recent quarterly results, Um, we also saw them take the decision to um, uh, uh, postpone their dividend um, in a way that hasn't happened for uh, a very long time for for Shell, and it's been um, heralded as as quite a departure from um, uh, previous strategy. And similarly, we've seen a similar exercise with the likes of Equinor, who's, who's also suspended their dividend. Um, but in in each of those cases, as well, a renewed commitment um, to um, the climate change agenda. I think there is, um, and 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 Jeff touched on it. You know, a, a concern, particularly amongst um, several stakeholders, also from the financial community, that the uh, commitments made by the oil and gas uh, industry to uh, continue on that trajectory towards um, a decarbonised future is is not something that is allowed to um, that, that is allowed to uh, be postponed or in any way uh, delayed by the uh, impact of, of COVID. And in some respects, we've seen, of course, that massive drop in demand. Significantly affecting uh, emissions uh, and use of uh, oil and gas products um, in the in the short term, um, which has also given some agency to uh, consumers and given them a sense that actually um, they have a role to play in um, reducing our overall climate emissions. And I think that is a really useful for for the for the for businesses like um, Jeff's who have. Um, you know a, a, an enormous transition uh, in front of them for, for their businesses over the next couple of decades to see that those behavioral changes and that there is a, a broader acceptance of the the need for change in consumer attitudes and and, uh, um, and and behaviors is is an important factor in the decarbonization agenda and I think we've started that sense of agency that will have been um, uh, I think renewed amongst consumer audiences uh, will be very useful for businesses as they look to meet those 2050 net zero challenges because because they are bold commitments at the moment and will take a lot to deliver.
2: Okay uh, Jeff I, I want to bring you back to the conversation uh, what happened I mean when, my, my, when I was covering um, post GFC we had a lot of businesses... large businesses across various industries who previously had bold plans about sustainability and all these sorts of things. But as soon as the recession hit, quickly rode away from that. I'm just wondering, there's a lot of people who are suggesting that this could be a deeper and worse recession than, than the GFC. I'm wondering how BP can continue to commit to these really bold plans um, and it not be impacted by COVID. How, how would you respond to that?
0: Yes, I remember the you know the two thousand eight, two thousand nine recession and how it derailed a lot of ambitious carbon plans then, including in the United States. There was a lot of momentum around the, the Waxman-Markey cap and trade bill in the United States Congress. And as soon as the recession hit, the concern over clean energy quickly returned to cheap energy. Mm-hmm. And I think there is, you know, concern today that as we attempt to uh, re-energize the economy, if you will. Uh, that you know, policymakers may choose you know speed and and quantity over the quality of the, the, the restart. And that's why I think you've seen a lot of talk among ESG commentators, uh, specifically, about the need to build back better. And to seize this crisis, as Rahm Emanuel used to say, never let a good crisis go to waste, to use this crisis as the impetus to deliver the low-carbon economy that the world needs. Uh, So that is, that's the big question, I think, before policymakers. Um, I think we as a company, and Bernard Looney as our CEO has been very clear that uh, this crisis does not in any way derail us from our goal of becoming a net-zero company by 2050 or sooner and helping the world do the same on that timetable. In fact, uh, it only reaffirms the need for us to do that. It only reaffirms the need for the world to do that. Um, You know, for us, you know, we are a company that's dominated by oil and gas, and that means that you're beholden to a commodity market that can be very fickle, that can be very cyclical, Uh, that can be very turbulent, as we're seeing now. And while oil and gas will have a role to play for many decades to come, an important role to play, and we will continue producing it for many decades to come, uh, we are committed to becoming a more diverse uh, energy company. Um, And Bernard has boldly said that we are gonna be investing uh, less and less in oil and gas over time and more and more in low carbon energies. Um, So uh, I think he sees that this is, this is affirmation of the need to continue on with our ambitious agenda, uh, and in fact, uh, you know, I think in terms of the reinvention of BP, uh, it's cause to accelerate that, that you know, that we've got to get uh, our costs reduced, uh, we've got to get our balance sheet uh, in, a, in a stronger shape so that we are more nimble and can do more creative things. Um, and so we are very much setting about doing that, even as we're responding to the crisis.
2: Mm. Is there any, any, anything that this will slow down, though, in terms of those plans that you, that you outlined? Uh,
0: I don't think so. In fact, you know, one of the things that uh, we announced uh, in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic uh, was that we were taking certain measures to reduce costs. And that was announcing, as I said, a 25 percent reduction in our capital expenditure this year, a 25 percent reduction, and a uh, and a goal around reducing operating expenses as well. But uh, we also said simultaneously that we would not be cutting uh, our budget for uh, low carbon energies this year. So the half a billion dollars or so that we had earmarked for that will will be protected even as we're reducing costs elsewhere, including in our oil and gas uh, businesses.
1: And and Shell has actually made a similar commitment in terms of reinfencing that investment in in low carbon technologies. And I I saw a very interesting um, uh, report by UBS, actually reported in the Financial Times recently, that was suggesting that um, for two reasons, one, because of the low oil price, uh, and two, because of the um, uh, reduced cost of um, investment in renewables, you're starting to see uh, returns in terms of value creation as a percentage of capital expenditure come into parity between renewables and uh, oil and gas in, in key markets. And so there's a very real financial impetus as well. Uh, that will continue to support that transition.
2: I was just going to ask you, Jeff, one of the interesting aspects about your plan, uh, and we we discussed this last time we met, was the role of communications and advocacy. Um, I just wanted you to sort of touch a little bit um, on on those ideas and and just sort of explain to our listeners how important advocacy is going to be to BP realising its bold
0: plan. When Bernard announced our ambition to become a net zero company by 2050 or sooner. It wasn't just that we would do it ourselves. It was that we would help the world do it. And we laid out five aims to help us and five aims to help the world. And the sixth of those aims was that we were going to advocate uh, for a low carbon, uh, well-designed low carbon net zero policies, ideally, uh, around the world. And what's more, that we were going to redirect uh, money that we would have historically spent on uh, corporate reputation advertising uh, in support instead of our advocacy efforts around those policies, and um, you know believing that you know we could only do so much ourselves to get ourselves to net zero, and certainly the, you know, the world is going to need help in this regard as well. That you know good policies uh, would incentivize. Uh, better consumer choices, better corporate investments, and so forth. So uh, it, it is integral to, uh, to our success, our ability to deliver on our ambition. Uh, and I think it becomes even more important in the wake of COVID, where there is now, as I mentioned, a big discussion about, you know, how do you restart the economy? How do you get the world working again? Uh, and should we seize this opportunity to somehow build back better Uh, And, you know, good policy is going to be key to that. And so we are very much, as we're devising our own strategy uh, for how we want to build our more diverse, lower carbon energy business, we're looking at what are the policies we need to facilitate that. Uh, and I think we'll look at—we are looking at simultaneously what are the policies the world needs that, to help us build back better in a lower-carbon way. Mm. Um, so it is—it's a, a big part of our work. And you know, you know, historically, uh, advocacy—and you know, it uh, advocacy doesn't always have the best name, uh, or you know, around the world. Uh, I—we debated whether or not we should rename our function. Uh, from communications and external affairs to communications and advocacy. And I thought, in light of the importance of advocacy for us achieving our ambition, that we should rename ourselves, we should put a greater emphasis on the role of advocacy. And even though some people think negatively of the term advocacy, associating it with lobbying, uh, I believe and we believe that it's a question of what you're advocating for. And if you're advocating in a transparent way that's aligned with what you state publicly is what you believe in and it, and it's in support of low carbon, ideally net zero uh, policies or regulations or legislation, then that can be a good thing. And we can help redefine advocacy uh, for the world as a positive thing if it's directed towards good ends. And historically, I think the reason people think somewhat negatively about lobbying and advocacy is that companies like ours would focus a lot of their lobbying efforts around protecting uh, regulatory and legislative encroachment on their traditional businesses. And Bernard has challenged us to think differently about that. Instead of reflexively protecting the old, our old interests, why don't we think about how we can use policy to advance our new aims? To, you know, we own, 50, we own the largest um, charging company, uh, electrical vehicle charging co- company in the U.K. So why would we fight uh, the U.K. government's attempts to ban the internal combustion engine uh, in London or in the U.K. on a certain timetable? because that actually could be the benefit benefit of that business, even as it may harm our traditional fuels business. Mm -hmm. So he wants us to think differently about how we we do advocacy and lobbying and, and public engagement around the world.
2: Okay. Chris, I just want to um, ask you about advocacy, lobbying a- and that sort of stuff. Uh, I, I guess there is a perception out there that you've got, you know, some oil and gas companies might be advertising in a certain way and behind the scenes, they'll be lobbying against things. Um, there's sort of that tension that I think has been exposed in, in the media before. Obviously, what BP has is, is, is said is, is they don't want to do that anymore and they want to focus on positive advocacy. How important do you think advocacy is in this industry to really drive change?
1: I think I think it's absolutely vital Um, and I think in many respects the oil and gas industry are actually starting to take a leaf out of the um, out of the renewables uh, industry as Jeff said you know this is an industry that's used when it comes to engagement with governments about uh, focusing on uh, access and focusing on building long-term relationships. But actually that's changing and as as we transition and as Particularly, government spending becomes such an important part of that transition. Where government is going to invest, where government is going to focus its uh, its future growth agenda, becomes incredibly important. Um, and actually, we really need you know. And BP is one of these organisations who is uh, really looking to, to, to create uh, change. We're in we're at a moment where government is looking for big ideas. Um, and there are some really knotty, difficult parts of our economy that are quite difficult to to decarbonize. And, you know, an example of which is a project that we've been working on called Net Zero side, which is looking to uh, use carbon capture and storage technology to decarbonize that industrial cluster in a way that really no other technology could. But that sort of investment really needs government to be um, supporting that. And, and there is a fund that government has created um, in order to support those projects. But where that investment goes is going to be really crucial. And so the advocacy of those projects, the advocacy of businesses like Jeff's in order to shape um, where where government is is supporting and providing that support and, and providing that vision for the future. It's not always about government uh, spending. A long time ago, we, we, we worked with Orsted, for example, which is the Uh, formerly known as uh, Dong, the Danish oil and natural gas company, who sold off their uh, oil and natural gas assets and now is a global leader in offshore wind. And we very much helped them as they shaped that agenda, as they took that to government. And it wasn't just about putting in place the sort of subsidy regimes that were needed in order to support offshore wind at that time, it was also about creating a pathway showing what the next couple of decades are going to look like. because actually the sort of investments that energy companies make make need a need a 20 30 year time horizon in terms of the payback that's the usual payback period that um, these organizations are looking at so they need a stable partner with government in order to create the sort of policy environment that uh, that they
2: can invest in okay fantastic final question um, and I, I'd like to ask this to both of you but I'll start off with you Jeff if there is one silver lining that can come out of this COVID period, what would that be? What What do you hope that that society or, or BP, um, how how this might change um, the way people approach things or the way your business or your industry operates?
0: I think it would be that there's just a fundamental rethink of how we do business, uh, and by business I don't just mean commercial ventures like ours. I mean how governments work, how corporates work, um, how everybody sort of has been doing business as usual for years. Uh, this has caused, uh, I think, a lot of us to reassess our ways of working, uh, our prioritization, um, and really think fresh about how we approach things. So we certainly are doing that in BP about how we work. Um, you know, is it right that when situation allows that we go back to a, an office setting the way we have uh for decades previously or have we found in fact that uh, working from home has given us uh more time more balance perhaps both between work and family uh it's obviously created challenges as well but you know one of the things that bernard's remarked on is that he has been way more connected to his organization than he ever would have been had the pandemic not hit meaning that he, from his flat here in London, uh, can, within the span of a a day, uh, be talking to, meeting with virtually, you know, for coffee, uh, a team in China, uh, a team in the U.S., a team in Europe. He'll do virtual site visits, virtual coffee uh, clutches. Uh, He'll do virtual panel discussions, Virtual meetings all in the same day around the world that he would have never been able to do had he had had he needed to hop on a plane to do that. So it's causing us to really think, rethink how we work, um, and I think it should cause you know governments and policymakers to rethink their approach to solving um, you know seemingly intractable problems like like climate and 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 uh, and lower carbon energy.
2: Okay. Chris, any silver linings from this COVID period that you can see in the horizon?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tough – it's obviously been a very incredibly tough time for, uh, for, for everyone in, in the world. I do think, though, that there are some silver linings. And I think um, I touched on this before, but the IEA, the International Energy Agency, is forecasting – that uh, this year we will see an 8% overall reduction in carbon dioxide emissions worldwide as a result of the lockdown that we've seen now that's a forecast and and it may be a different number that we see uh, in the fullness of time but just to put that into perspective the scale of the challenge that we need to deliver as a world economy in order to um, avoid the worst effects of climate change as described in the Paris climate agreement mean that we need to see that sort of scale of reduction almost every year for the next decade. Um, And I think if there is a silver lining, I think it's that it has opened people's eyes to the scale of the challenge, while at the same time helping people to understand that they have a really significant role in um, creating the sort of change that we need and to help businesses like BP and and others in the industry to, to transition by showing Um, how they are changing and showing how those behaviors are changing and I think that increased sense of agency that people will feel as a Result of seeing the consequences of their actions Will hopefully create the sort of change and the pace of change that we need in order to avoid those consequences of climate change
2: Well, let's hope so. Thank you, Chris. I'm afraid that is all we have time for today I'd like to thank Jeff Morell from BP and Chris Pratt from H&K for joining us and our production partner, Marketeers. Thank you all for listening. If you found this podcast valuable, please do visit PR Week's website and subscribe to support our journalism and stay on top of these issues. On behalf of the PR Week team, until next time, goodbye. Thanks for listening to the PR Show podcast with Arvin Hickman.
1: Brought to you by PR Week. If you like what you heard, please leave us a nice review. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.